to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Thursday, February 9th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode number 886 of the Russ Belleville Show, and on today's episode, we are looking in-depth at the new Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. Coming up in our Cannabis Focus, we've got an interview with John J. Hudak that appeared in The Cannabis, where he outlines what the Attorney General could do if he wanted to strike down legal marijuana. And our special guest on the show today, Diane Goldstein, a board member from Law Enforcement Action Partnership. She's going to tell us about the new LEAP broadening their mission. We'll get into all of that, plus audio from Jeff Sessions in Hour 2. But first, we bring you the Cannabis Headline News. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis News for Thursday, February 9th, 2017. Republican Congressman Dana Rohrabacher of California introduced legislation in the U.S. House of Representatives on Tuesday that would resolve the conflict between state and federal marijuana laws and allow states to determine their own marijuana policies. The Respect State Marijuana Laws Act exempts individuals and entities from certain provisions of the Controlled Substances Act if they are acting in compliance with state marijuana laws. This is the third time Rohrabacher has introduced the bill. Twenty of his colleagues in the House, including seven Republicans, co-sponsored the Respect Respect State Marijuana Laws Act of 2015, which was introduced in the 114th Congress. Extensive revisions to New Mexico's medical marijuana program that would automatically allow all military veterans to qualify as patients are advancing in the state legislature. The Senate Judiciary Committee endorsed the proposed legislation on Wednesday, despite objections from members to the veterans' eligibility provisions. Republican Senator and former Navy Rear Admiral William Payne called the provision offensive because it paints all military veterans as presumptive medical marijuana patients. Other proposed changes to a 2007 law legalizing medical cannabis would add treatable medical conditions, including substance abuse disorder. State registry cards for approved patients would require renewal every three years instead of annually. Researchers started this week the first ever clinical trial of marijuana for treating the effects of post-traumatic stress in veterans. Approved by the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Food and Drug Administration, the study is intended to develop marijuana into a legal prescription drug. Researchers are looking for other volunteers who experienced trauma during their military service. The study is being conducted at the Scottsdale Research Institute in Arizona and Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Veterans will visit the clinic 17 times over a 12-week period and then will be scheduled for a six-month follow-up. To apply, email Arizona at marijuanasites.org or call John Hopkins at 
Recreational marijuana shops could open in Nevada as early as July 1st under a timeline proposed by the state's top tax official Wednesday. State Department of Taxation Executive Director Dion Contine told a panel of state lawmakers that she expects to begin accepting applications for temporary licenses to sell recreational pot in May, well in advance of the state's January 1st, 2018 deadline. Temporary licenses will be open only to medical marijuana shops in good standing with the state. Contine said she's aiming to greenlight those businesses to sell to the public by July 1st. Based on Contine's tentative timeline, any entrepreneur could apply for a license to sell recreational marijuana in Nevada as soon as October 2018. The latest that could happen is July of 2019. With notorious drug trafficker Joaquin El Chapo Guzman now behind bars in New York after he was extradited from Mexico last month, federal prosecutors in North Dakota have set their sights on bringing in one of his organization's one-time rivals to the United States to face charges. In court documents unsealed Tuesday, authorities say Juan Francisco Cias Rocha was a top lieutenant for the Arellano Felix Cartel, which smuggled cocaine, marijuana, and other drugs into the United States and competed against the Sinaloa Cartel led by Guzman, once considered the most wanted man in the world. Authorities have described C.S. Rocha as a prolific hitman responsible for killing 20 to 30 people a month during the cartel's heyday in Tijuana. C.S. Rocha was arrested six years ago in Mexico, but his federal case in the U.S. had remained sealed from public view until this week. Tim Heafy, former U.S. attorney for Virginia, said it's common to seal such cases to preserve an investigation and protect witnesses. Peru's government says it will present to the opposition-dominated legislature a plan to legalize the medical use of marijuana for the treatment of serious and terminal illnesses. President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski's administration said Wednesday the plan was developed after police raided a house in a Lima neighborhood where a group of parents grew marijuana to make oil for treating their children suffering from epilepsy and other diseases. This has been your Cannabis News for Thursday, February 9th, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belleville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Hi, KB. Who are your friends? My classmate, Ocean. Peace and be happy, man. My teacher, Mr. Plitt. Yeah, he makes class fun. He's cool and he knows lots of stuff. Hey, dude. Who are not your friends? Well, there's these two guys at school, Jesse and Jeff. Jeff does drugs and he tries to get us to do it too. Jesse thinks he's cool because he hangs out with Jeff. Hey guys, wanna have some fun? Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, get a life, guys. This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Exclusively on RadicalRust.com. When you are starting up a medical cannabis business, you want a fired-up lawyer who understands the needs of cannabis consumers. The Law Office of Lauren Vasquez is your fired-up lawyer for the cannabis industry. Visit her website, fireduplawyer.com, or call 1-855-MMJ-LAWS for more information. That's 855-665-5297 for Lauren Vasquez, your fired-up lawyer. Or email fireduplawyer at gmail.com. The Russ Belleville Show. 
providing dictionaries to drug czars since 2009. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. Bueller. 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 A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. The big news story for the Cannabis Focus and indeed for the rest of the show today is the confirmation of Senator Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, or as I like to call him, Jeff Bo III, uh, as our next attorney general. And this has been something we've worried about here at the show since the election of Donald Trump, who would be our next attorney general to lead the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Department of Justice, the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Basically, are we going to be able to continue with the marijuana industry and the movement to legalize medical and adult use marijuana? Or are we going to see a return to the drug war? And the cannabis out of Colorado sat down with John J. Hudak. He's with the Brookings Institute and the author of Marijuana, A Short History. And they talked about the scenarios that might occur under the administration of the Department of Justice under Attorney General Sessions. The cannabis asked how quickly Sessions might be able to move on a change in enforcement. Uh, Hudak answers that Sessions could an hour after taking the oath, he says, this is the quote, I can see Jeff Sessions an hour after taking the oath rescinding the Cole memo. I don't think he's necessarily going to do that, but he can. So the Cole memo, of course, lays out the eight priorities uh, that the uh, Obama administration under Attorney General Holder, Attorney General Lynch, uh, the eight priorities they use to determine whether or not it was worth the Department of Justice's time to go after state legal marijuana. Among these priorities are keeping it out of public lands, making sure it doesn't leave the state, making sure kids aren't using marijuana and so forth. And so far, that has uh, yet to have been cited as a reason to bust any of the states. And Sessions, as you'll hear in our next hour, uh, seems to be of the opinion that uh, the Cole memo might be a good thing if anybody were checking up on it, if they were following up on whether or not these conditions had been met. Uh, Hudak goes on to say that uh, the attorney general doesn't have the budget or manpower to physically enforce the Controlled Substances Act nationwide. So it's not like you're going to see DEA agents breaking down the doors of the storefronts tomorrow. But for policymakers and elected officials, it's a little different, especially uh, based on how they uh, might face some sort of prosecution under the uh, Trump administration. Uh, Cannabis asks uh, what. Uh, his priorities might be Hudak points out that immigration is going to be pretty central to the priorities of the Department of Justice under the uh, Sessions uh, administration of it. And uh, the opioid crisis would be of another uh, uh, import to the department. And in our next segment, by the way, we're going to go take a drug war data mining look at some of the statistics on the opioid overdose crisis. So, uh, The thought here is that uh, marijuana may not be at the top of his radar. Now, the cannabis asks, hypothetically, if he does decide to enforce federal law, what 
could that look like? And while physical law enforcement's one option, you know, actually sending agents to raid and bust places, um, he points out that there's just not enough manpower and they can't compel state and local authorities to help them in that task. But he could file lawsuits. He could ask courts for injunctions. He could ask courts for restraining orders to stop state officials from behaving in a certain way. He also says, quote, I think the states that just approved legal marijuana to actually stop before it starts is going to be a more effective strategy. If I were advising Jeff Sessions, I'm certainly not. If I were asked to provide the quickest stab to the heart of what you can do, I would say file an injunction against the eight governors who just legalized medical and recreational marijuana, freezing their systems in place. That includes California, and that's a killer. And Hudeck points out that's a pretty easy approach. You don't have to expend a lot of money and time. You do need attorneys and assistants, but you don't need 10,000 DEA agents. Now, he does point out that the larger states with medical and recreational programs, Colorado, Washington, California, Nevada, Oregon, would be bigger uh, problems to deal with and that Donald Trump doesn't like to fail. And so going after those big states might be tough. But a state like New York or Connecticut or Minnesota, where there's only a couple of grows and a few dispensaries, that could be the kind of thing that you could step in and shut down in just one day. As far as Congress goes, Cannabis asked uh, John Hudeck about that, and he says, while he has a lot of respect for Jared Polis and Earl Blumenauer, he thinks that they're looking at this through rose-colored glasses. And this is the uh, the old, you know, marijuana's too big, the industry's too big to attack. And he says, first, the industry's not that big, it's just not that big, and quote, If having a critical mass was enough to push Congress in the right direction, you would have seen medical marijuana legalized several years ago. I don't think California coming online as a rec state does anything to Congress or does anything to the AG. You have a Speaker of the House and a Senate Majority Leader who have no interest in dealing with this and have not offered any pro-reform position on marijuana yet. Those are powerful forces that stop this reform effort. End quote. The cannabis goes on to ask about the legislative writers like the Rohrabacher Farr Amendment. Now, that that, uh, expires at the end of March. And if it is renewed, what it does is it prevents the Department of Justice from spending money to go after the states that have legalized medical marijuana. Uh, His guess, according to John Hudak, he guesses that Rohrabacher Farr is not going to be stripped out. But he also says nothing new is going to get put in. So there may be some protection on the medical side, state legal medical marijuana protections, and Hudak points out that this has been uh, ruled upon by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So that protection only rules, only works in the Ninth Circuit. That's Alaska, Arizona, California, Hawaii, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington. So the West, Western medical marijuana might be okay under Rohrabacher Farr. But there's some question as to whether or not DOJ can spend money to shut down, say, New York or Connecticut or Maryland or any of those other states. And uh, let's see, what else do we have in here? There's no protection at all for recreational cannabis uh, operators. And uh, Hudak says, quote, the licensees who hold dual permits, joint permits, it creates a very difficult space. I think the problem, especially with marijuana cultivators, but it's true for marijuana dispensaries as well. If DEA comes in and seizes something, they have legal recourse to say, hey, I can't be held criminally liable for this. 
But if you destroy a bunch of plants in the process or compromise a bunch of plants in the process, there's not a ton of recourse to get made whole again around that. A creative attorney general could go in other states and other circuits and start shutting things down and test the waters of what another federal court might say on this. And here's another consideration to take into into your brain. The Ninth Circuit's ruled that Rohrabacher Farr is good law. Let's say that they push this in some other more conservative circuit. And that circuit court rules that it's bad law. Now you'd have two circuit courts in conflict with each other. And that automatically raises a case to go to the Supreme Court. And then you go into a Supreme Court that is possibly a 5-4 uh, uh, Supreme Court after Neil Gorsuch gets confirmed. And so we may have a Supreme Court decision soon that tells us that Rohrabacher Farr is no good. And that kills the protection for the West. Now, cannabis didn't want this to be completely uh, a bummer. They did ask uh, if there's any silver linings. He does say that um, he's optimistic about the confirmation hearing because when asked about the Cole memo, he complimented Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder and says, quote, he hates both of them. He could have easily punted on this, said, you know, there are a lot of enforcement priorities, yada, yada, yada. Instead, he went out of his way to talk about how enforcement priorities work and to compliment two people he vehemently disagrees with politically, ideologically, and I would guess personally. He did not have to do that. And that he did it suggests to me that he understands the magnitude of this choice and that it is an issue that cuts across party lines, end quote. So Hudek does have some hope that uh, those comments about Holder and Lynch, and, and we'll play some of those for you in hour two as well. We're going to do all the, I've dug up so many quotes from uh, uh, Jeff Sessions this morning uh, to bring to you. We'll play them all in hour two. But he does add uh, that, quote, frankly, I think almost to a fault, the marijuana industry puffs themselves up as this giant economic force when they're absolutely not. But I think the fact that marijuana policy doesn't matter to most members of Congress is actually a good thing, because it also means that even if Jeff Sessions has rhetoric on this issue that makes the industry squirm and cringe, there are 10 things he cares about a lot more. And that's a good thing. Sometimes a low priority is a no priority. And the final bit of advice uh, that uh, John Hudak from Brookings Institute offers to the marijuana industry is to say the industry needs to get focused. There's infighting within the industry. It's true here in Colorado with different industry groups among competitors. That's an important part of capitalism, and it's a healthy part of capitalism. But when you're facing a possible existential threat, you have to think more about what is important. It's important to come together and speak as close to one voice as possible. Most people who don't live in places like Colorado and Washington, and I would say those two specifically, have no idea what the marijuana industry is like, how it's functioned, how it's regulated. People in Colorado and Washington really understand it, and I think that's why four years out from this vote, it's still just as popular as it was on Election Day. And the final question, what does John Hudak think will actually happen under the Obama or under the uh, uh, Jeff Sessions Department of Justice? He says, I think so much time and energy and effort is going to be spent on immigration that there won't be much time for anything else. And two, it's only a matter of time before there's another terrorist attack in the United States, not necessarily 9-11 large, but a shooting like San Bernardino or Orlando that always creates a new track for any administration. There are a lot of reasons I believe the administration is going to be distracted from marijuana enforcement. And the, the longer they're distracted, the more the system continues to operate efficiently without significant harm and the better off it is. 
and the lower it drops as a priority. I think we may get some war on drugs rhetoric. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. New but the good news may be banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. You're not high. You're listening to The Russ Belleville Show. Some of the people who were taking marijuana for those purposes, the coroner uh, believed after they died there was drug interactions. Okay, maybe you're high too. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. (coughs) Or at least they pay me to say that. Cool. (laughs) A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we want to take a look at a drug other than cannabis, and this would be opioids. Uh, we're talking about heroin. We're talking about prescription drugs like Oxycontin, Percocet, Vicodin. The opiate overdose crisis has come to a head here in America, and people coast to coast are freaking out about it. It's also interesting to note uh, how the states and counties that overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump are the ones that have the greatest degree of opiate overdose crisis. Uh, this is a, a subject of Bill Maher's rant the other day about um, about these folks. And, and it brings me to a point I always like to make about this, and that is we talk about having an opiate overdose crisis, but what we really have in this co- country is a crisis of untreated pain of people that are suffering. That's what leads to this. People don't just decide to use drugs for the fun of it. A lot of times they're using it in response to uh, a shortcoming in their life, in in their world, socially or physically when they're in great pain. Regardless, this has led to uh, an overdose death epidemic in this country where right now, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 91 Americans die every day from prescription opioids and heroin. 91 a day. Now, we're doing a lot to try to treat this. There is uh, naloxone, which is the opiate overdose cure. It's an instant cure, and we're starting to get this out to our law enforcement personnel, uh, cops, first responders, EMTs are starting to carry naloxone. That's going to help a lot of people. But these deaths continue to increase, and more than 6 out of 10 of the overdose deaths that happen in America involve an opioid. And usually it's not the opioid by itself. The opioid by itself can usually be used pretty safely. Oftentimes it's the combination of that opiate with alcohol that leads to the problem, having two depressants at the same time, or 
a case where someone is buying black market opiates and they've been laced with something more powerful. For example, heroin being laced with fentanyl. Since 1999, the number of overdose deaths involving opioids, this would include the prescriptions and the heroin, quadrupled four times greater since 1999. From 2000 to 2015, more than half a million people have died from drug overdoses, 91 every day from opiates. They're a driving factor in this opiate overdose death rate. The prescription drugs are. People think of this opiate overdose thing and they tend to think of heroin. They tend to think of illegal drugs. Folks, it's mostly, we're talking as prescription drugs here. Since 1999, the amount of prescription opioids sold in the U.S. nearly quadrupled. Now, in addition to these opiates quadrupling, keep in mind, the ONDCP, the, the, the DEA, has an office of drug diversion of diversion control is what it's called. And their job is to approve, part of their job, is to approve the quotas for the drug manufacturers. How much OxyContin can they make? How much Percocet can they make? And since the medical marijuana era, they have allowed that quota to increase over 1,600% for some of these drugs. So the fact that there are more of these drugs out there The fact that the doctors are prescribing them more often. We've got a situation now where a quarter billion, a quarter billion of these prescriptions have been written out. There are enough prescriptions for opiates in this country so that every American can have their own bottle. Every American can have their own bottle of prescription opioids. These uh, prescription opioids, of course, lead to uh, dependence, Sensitivity to pain, constipation, nausea, vomiting, dry mouth, sleepiness, dizziness, confusion, depression, low testosterone, low sex drive, itching, sweating. And of course, we've found recently that the states that have access to medical cannabis, have access to marijuana, have lower rates of opiate deaths. One quarter lower. One quarter fewer deaths and fewer pills being prescribed by about 1,500 fewer pills per doctor in the states that have the option of medical cannabis. Nearly half of these opioid overdose deaths involve a prescription prescription opiate. In the highest prescribing state, in Alabama, they wrote three times as many prescriptions per person as they did in the lowest prescribing state, Hawaii. And we found nationwide, despite the fact that we're getting a quadrupling of the opiate prescriptions, opiate overdoses, the um, the pain being reported to doctors across the country hasn't changed much at all. Now, my theory on that is that the only people who can report their pain to doctors are people that can afford to go to doctors. And a lot of people that are using these opiates, using heroin, don't have health care. That's why they're on these drugs. That's why they end up in a bad situation with them. The most commonly overdosed opioids, 1,000 people a day, more than 1,000 people per day are treated in emergency rooms for their opiate use, more than 1,000 per day. Methadone, Oxycontin, Hydrocodone, usually affecting people between the ages of 25 and 54. Higher rates of overdose, for non-Hispanic whites, American Indians, and Alaskan natives. 
And as of 2014, nearly 2 million Americans either abused or were dependent on prescription opioids. One in four who are using opioids long-term are struggling with addiction. That is part of why I think the war against marijuana won't take off as much as it could because people are now more worried about the opiates. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of the Russ Belleville Show and 420 Radio. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. Okay, maybe you're high, too. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Or at least they pay me to say that. Yes, I cannabis. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Disturbing elements of the Prohibition War is how it's made police the enemy of otherwise law-abiding cannabis consumers. Fortunately, one group of police officers knows the futility of Prohibition and reaches out to educate the community and current law enforcement. Today, the Russ Belleville Show visits with another speaker from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition with one clear message. Cops say legalized drugs. All right, welcome back, everybody. 30 after the hour, and I'm going to have to get a new introduction recorded because the group that was formerly known as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, like Prince, has changed their name. It's now Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and joining us to talk about it, we've got Lieutenant Commander Diane Goldstein, a board member of LEAP. How you doing, Diane? Hey, Russ. It's nice to hear your voice. We haven't chatted since, uh, I believe, New York. Yeah, that's been been a while. It's always good to talk to my friends from Leap. And, uh, you know, the last time we saw each other, you and myself and uh, Neil Franklin, the executive director, you guys were kind of mulling this over that you were going to be changing your uh, your 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 a- action partnership. You're going to change your mission. Uh, tell folks about that process, about uh, what made you want to change the group from being law enforcement against prohibition to law enforcement action partnership. You know, this process, um, even though we were discussing it kind of in like we're mulling it over, I think that we from the board of directors had been had been having this conversation for about the last year plus. And one of the issues was that um, 
we see as part of our role is bringing more law enforcement over to our side. And what we were seeing is we were getting a ton of pushback because we were just against something and not necessarily proposing policy. So in, in since 2002, although we've done an amazing job of going out and educating law enforcement and lawmakers and, and the public, is um, we still had active duty criminal justice professionals who were reluctant to join us because of a lot of the stigma associated with substance use or abuse, so to speak. Um, and so this was a very carefully crafted um, change that resulted from us really looking at our mission, our vision, and how best to sustain this organization long term to really uh, create change in the criminal justice system. And so since our launch, uh, Seattle, uh, the Seattle, the elected uh, Seattle city attorney, Pete Holmes, has joined us as a speaker. Since our launch just, you know, less than a month ago is uh, we've had several active duty police officers that, in fact, have joined us that are now safe to do so without retribution from their law enforcement organizations. That's great news. Uh, So the idea here, then, is not deep abandoning the position of fighting against the drug war, but folding that into a broader uh, message. Um, Yes. So let me be very clear that ending the drug war is and will always be the number one goal of our new organization, which is not a new organization. I think um, I I was talking to another activist, Sharmi Golson, uh, when we launched and I sent her our um, new website. She says, well, what's really different? And there really isn't anything except for now we're in a place where it's not just discussing the harms of the drug war, but clearly identifying many of the solutions and the policies that we can change. So drug policy will always be the root of what we're trying to bring down, but we're now rather than, you know, cutting down this very diseased tree that has all these collateral consequences. We want to build good policy and we need active duty law enforcement and criminal justice professionals to do that as well as legislators. Many of the discussions that I've had with folks from uh, law enforcement against prohibition over the past couple of years have dealt with the the tragic shootings that have happened. Unarmed uh, black men, oftentimes these are drug related or at least the investigation began because drugs were assumed to be related. Was that a motivating factor for uh, for you, for Neil Franklin? I know he came up in the in hard streets of Baltimore. Was that a motivating factor for when you broaden this mission? Uh, you know what? I think, uh, you know, I'll speak for myself, yes, um, and for Neil as well, um, is I think what this allows us to do is to talk about how we change law enforcement training. You know, it is, I'm, I'm in grad school right now, and it's interesting that I'm writing a paper on uh, the subculture of law enforcement and how we effectively change organizations from within. And this allows us to broaden the scope and basically say, hey, look, there are some state-of-the-art law enforcement academies that are out there. For example, uh, State of Washington has an academy that has completely changed the dynamics of their law enforcement training to emphasize uh, 
the protection of life that, you know, that's our first priority. And, and they have, um, contributed to the growing research on de-escalation and communication and how that can in fact reform law enforcement agencies and make both police officers safer and the community. Well, that, that's something I'm glad to hear because it's, it's, it's been something I've been paying attention to a lot in, in the interviews that I've done. And this is, you know, just one of many areas where I, I believe law enforcement uh, action partnership can be helpful to us. Uh, what are some other areas of policing that LEAP might get involved with? So civil asset forfeiture reform, we've been talking about it for years, uh, and it's never really been a primary focus of our organization. That is now one of the significant pillars of, of what we're going to be addressing. You know, I think obviously you wrote an article um, with, within the last couple days on the, um, the statement by 45 to the sheriff uh, on we're going to destroy a, sen- a senator's career because he's proposed reforming a clearly so- supported bipartisan policy. Um, you know, both Republicans and Democrats alike are supporting reforming and ending civil asset forfeiture reform. So that's going to be a huge tenet because we don't want to see the rollbacks uh, that that may occur if we don't reform forfeiture at the state level. I'm glad you bring up the uh, civil asset forfeiture. Uh, I've been putting together uh, some audio from the new attorney general, Jeff Sessions, uh, and I found this clip from him from one of the uh, one of the one of the. Uh, uh, one of the meetings, one of the hearings they had on Capitol Hill uh, regarding what they call the equitable sharing program of asset forfeiture. Let me play that for you and then ask you a question, get some comment on that. Just one second. The federal government has a good system for forfeiture. Try that again. Oh, no. Uh, wouldn't you know it froze up on me just when I was trying to play that for you. Uh, let's see if we can get that uh, clip to play for you one more time here. Let's try no, it doesn't want to play. Okay, well, I'll just go ahead and just ask you the question directly. Uh, it, it, it appears that uh, Attorney, Attorney General Sessions is uh, quite fond of the equitable sharing program and lamented the uh, Eric Holder's uh, direction to uh, dismantle that program and stop the sharing with the state and local authorities of the assets that are seized in criminal cases. Uh this doesn't bode well, I think, for any movement on this asset forfeiture. Have you guys heard anything different or or have any plans to press this with the uh, the Department of Justice? So, you know, it, it's very interesting. Um, one of the things that I've seen in the last couple of years, not just on the issue of cannabis reform, but around the issue of civil asset forfeiture reform, is that the states increasingly are passing significant civil asset forfeiture reform legislation. And in large aspects, I think that's going to be the way that we push Congress to eliminate, if which is really the long-term goal. There should be no such thing as civil asset forfeiture, you know, unless it's agreed upon, you know, fine um, or some other type of forfeiture that that we've used in the past. But the notion that someone's property is guilty and you have to prove it innocent violates every tenet of our constitution. 
absolutely agreed. And it was pointed out that in that uh, in that remark that President Trump made uh, to the Sheriff's Association, the sheriff had brought up a Texas state senator who proposed. And I don't think this is too radical a notion. He had proposed that, gosh, maybe somebody ought to be guilty before we take their stuff. And President Trump dismissed that and said, can you believe it? And uh, can you even understand the people on the other side of this issue? Uh, what is it with these people? They don't understand the basics of our of our uh, constitutional democracy. Well, I think that part of the issue is, is you have to go back and look at the history. It's, you know, like every other broad based law that we've enacted is even the founders of uh, uh, Brad uh, Cates and Yoder, John Yoder, who started the federal civil asset forfeiture uh, program in 1980, state today, and in fact, Brad Cates is working with Institution of Justice, um, uh, and I've done some work with Brad around this issue. They state today that the program is so corrupted that it needs to be completely eliminated, that there is no fixing the federal equitable sharing program. And so I think what's interesting is with people like Brad Cates and John Yoder and, you know, we're finding partners in, in both sides of the aisle. Um, you have to remember in California last year, we had a two year battle with law enforcement on this issue. And we had a very interesting partnership that I would walk in to legislators office with a member of the Heritage Foundation the um, lobbyist for the Drug Policy Alliance, myself, and a member of the ACLU. So all of us may not agree on a lot of different issues, but on this issue, it's very clear there's a huge support uh, (coughs) in the public and in politicians to end the practice. There does seem to be uh, a lot of... uh momentum or a lot of uh, energy from the law enforcement community though to keep this practice and and uh it seems to me that the, all this practice does is it, is it basically incentivizes state and local uh, uh authorities to help the feds go after their their drug cases when without that booty they might not do so correct there's there's no if ands or buts about it is um one of the things that we managed to do in, in California uh, legislation is we actually uh, enhance the protections for, for California residents who may be impacted by federal joint narcotics task forces. So in, in California right now, if uh, you own any real property or have cash up to $40,000, it requires a conviction, whether it's on the federal level or on um, the state level. And so uh, we would we would like to continue to, you know, uh, raise that uh, monetary amount uh, in order to continue to provide protections. But that was a compromise that was kind of a win win for the legislators and law enforcement. Another issue in our criminal justice system that has been exacerbated through the uh, the war on certain American citizens using non-pharmaceutical, non-alcoholic, tobacco-free drugs is the use of mandatory minimum sentencing. And this is something else that came up uh, in a couple of the uh, reviews or a couple of the hearings with uh, Senator Sessions at the time. And he was also a, a bit apoplectic about the idea that we would be reducing mandatory minimums, not throwing the book at people. Uh, what uh, concrete steps can we take and what steps are our leap taking to 
fight against this abuse of mandatory minimums? Um, you know what is uh, across every state, uh, and I think this is going to be one of those things that is, is again, going to be a state-by-state state fight, is we're working with coalition partners, um, the ACLU, and, and other, I think it's Americans for Safe Justice, you know, the, the CKI institution, the Charles Koch Foundation, is working to reform the criminal justice system right on crime, is, is we've developed some very, very significant relationships that will help prevent that. And I think like everything that happens at the state level, we can protect our citizens under the 10th Amendment and then use that as pressure for the federal government to butt out of the criminal justice system around the issue of drug use, you know, is for years, I think that that they have overreached. And I think that's my concern with 45's administration is, is he honestly has no clue about policy. And he's reverting back to, you know, the Richard Nixon law and order, throw away the book. Uh, on people. And, you know, I heard his speech to the, to the Major Chiefs Association, and it really concerns me to hear that language again of we're going to be ruthless on drug offenders uh, instead of where, where we finally got the Department of Justice and the Drug Czar's office to start talking about chronic substance abuse more from it from an issue of harm reduction and compassion and recognizing that we can incarcerate our way out of this issue. And, and that's the rhetoric we're getting from uh, now attorney general sessions in the, in the previous uh, couple of years in the hearings, he has many times uh, re- evoked the memory of Ronald and Nancy Reagan, particularly uh, singling out the Just Say No program. He says it it cut the drug use by half. It cut the murders by half. Crime went down. He thinks the Just Say No era was uh, when America was great. And I think he wants to make America great again. Uh, are you worried about that from uh, from that perspective, the rhetoric perspective? Oh. I'm hugely worried about the rhetoric perspective. And, you know, I, I think that the next um, the next couple of years, because, you know, I'm not projecting out four years. I'm projecting out to 2018 and the midterm election is um, what I'm hoping is, you know, his use of executive orders, which has been horrific, uh, much worse than than um, 44s were. Uh, in addition to the the rhetoric, may very well um, be the catalyst for change in uh, the Senate and in the House of Representatives. And then, it, so so really, the the target and the strategy is hold that line, man. I'm feeling like this is football at this point. You know, we're <laughs> we're we've gone from playing offense to playing defense, and and we have got to hold that line. And not lose any of the games that we made. Mm, as as a Packers fan, I don't want to hear about defense. Um, <laughs> we could use some over there too in Green Bay. Uh, so let's talk a little inside baseball now on this because uh, the evolution uh, leap was first formed in what two thousand two? Is that right? Correct. Okay, so LEAP was formed as law enforcement against prohibition in 2002, and early on, there was kind of a schism in between, well, some of us think we should legalize pot, but maybe not the other drugs, whereas LEAP was like, no, we should legalize all drugs. As you've moved forward now and expanded this into law enforcement action partnership, 
Is there an internal break as well from some that say, hey, we're going, we're straying too far from the mission of ending the war on drugs? Um, Yeah, there there has been a schism, but you have to understand is our mission is still to legalize all drugs. Our our mission is to end the drug war. That's not going to change. Um, and, and by broadening the mission, I think it's going to make us stronger and it, and it's going to make us, um, you know, in the last couple of years, we have not been outliers on the issues of cannabis, but we continue to be outliers on the issues of, you know, what do we do with all the other drugs? And, um, I think this gives us the ability to continue to craft the message that our drug policies are a human rights disaster, um, you know, here and abroad. Plain, simple, end of story, that is not going to change at all. And um, I think it, it's also going to allow us to be smarter. You know, I use the, the strategy and talking about states' rights all the time, not just on the issue of cannabis, but on the issue of every other drug. And in California, our, you know, substance use or how we want to enforce our drug policies is different than how New York or Idaho does, you know. And, and so it is, I think we're, the next couple of years, we're going to make more gains on the state levels. Um, and I think we're going to lose a little bit on the federal level. But there's hope. I mean, Dana Rohrbacher and Several other Democrats just, you know, once again is introduced a bill to respect states' rights. And, and, and I think that's how we're going to be able to sell other Republicans on it. I sure hope that's the case. Uh, my only fear of a backlash on the states' rights argument is somebody saying, yeah, but doesn't Idaho, Kansas, and Nebraska have the right to not have legal weed pouring over their borders? We shall see. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, it sounds to me as though the the move to law enforcement action partnership uh, broadening the mission is going to bring in more law enforcement professionals. And what I'm hoping to see is maybe some more of the active duty uh, police officers uh, getting involved. Is is that something that you're, you're hoping for or seeing happen from this transition? We're already seeing it happen and we're actively out there uh, meeting with with people who are active duty criminal justice professionals, whether they're, you know, district attorneys or judges or police officers or DEA agents, we already have been very, very strategic in establishing relationships with people even before this launch. And, and so I think that's going to be very beneficial. And, and if it's people that maybe can't speak out at this point, they're opening up their own network to, to us as well. And so I think that's, that's, really critically important. And, you know, it's, I, I want to go back. One of the things that's been very interesting relative to this issue of, of, um, you know, what's going on with the new administration. I've also been very pleased to see, you know, law enforcement agencies say things like, you know what, it's not my agency's role to help the federal government with immigration. Carly Beck just said it at LAPD. The new San Francisco police chief just said it. In fact, I, I just read a, a, a policy memo from the Major Chiefs Association. In fact, I, I, the Los Angeles County District Attorneys uh, Association came out and said the exact same thing. So, you know, I, I don't think Trump has every, um, you know, police agency or, or administrator in his pocket is I, I think law enforcement, I'm hoping, is going to be able to do the right thing and say there are things that is within our purview and this just isn't one of them and we're not going to help you. 
We're speaking with Lieutenant Commander Diane Goldstein. She is a board member with Law Enforcement Action Partnership. You can learn more about them at leap.cc. And we're speaking to her in the state of California. And that brings me to the next subject. The, uh, the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, and it looks as though a big priority of his Department of Justice is going to be immigration, especially considering how much Donald Trump has made that an issue in his uh, campaigning. Uh, a recent article with uh, John J. Hudak from the uh, Brookings Institute uh, back that up saying that that'll be probably one of their biggest fish to fry. And in response to that, this, your state, the state of California is moving forward with a plan to be a sanctuary state. And I don't go too far into the immigration issue here, but basically saying flouting the federal government and saying, we're not going to have any California law enforcement help out with the immigration issue. Do you think that this could be California versus the federal government on immigration? And if so, would they go to bat for us on the marijuana issue as well? Well, you know what uh, is I think um, our new attorney general during his uh, confirmation hearing in California. So the California attorney general Becerra said that he will defend the California marijuana laws to the federal government. So it it, and yes, I, I honestly do believe that the state of California has basically said because we're going full board in in, you know, control regulation and implementation of not just McCursa, but uh, Proposition 64, as is other states. And so I think one of the things that'll be very interesting to see what I would like to see down the road, not just in California, but in other states, is that legislators do policy, just like we're doing on the issue of immigration, that says that bars local law enforcement with cooperating with federal law enforcement efforts to, uh, you know, uh, destroy our regulated medical marijuana or adult consumption industry, that we can't prevent the federal government from coming into our state, but we sure don't have to help them. And frankly, the federal government does not have the resources to do it. And so that's going to be the big issue is, you know, if we can't continue to push that line and say, look, you know, if the federal government wants to come in and, and um, arrest cartel members because they're illicitly growing marijuana in, in our state or national parks, let them. I don't have any issue with that. You know, uh, but if they want to come in and go after like a James Sladek or other people who, who have been licensed um, by the state, then I have a huge issue. All right. We're speaking again with uh, Diane Goldstein from Leap, and we're approaching the top of the hour. So I want to make sure we get a couple of other subjects in here uh, before I let you go, because, you know, now that your your mission is broadened, we got so much more we can talk about. There's things that I've been concerned about, and I'm hoping Leap is concerned about them as well. And that would have to do with the use of the uh, uh, the shoe, the secure housing unit, the uh, solitary confinement. Is Leap going to be getting involved in the issues like that with, you know, fair imprisonment and, and, and torture and such? You know what? We haven't gone that deep and nuanced. Um, I know that we have individuals um, from Leap that, that have spoke out about issues like that. And so I think it's going to depend on, you know, is there new legislation that we can support that may impact that? You know, uh, is, is it something that our coalition partners are proposing? 
you know, not every single policy issue is one that I think that we're going to actively uh, do, but we may work in conjunction with someone else. Gotcha. Does it, that make sense? Yeah. Some, I guess, I guess in a broader sense, I'm trying to gauge how broad does this uh, new partnership go to? Is it issues of just policing the courts, the prisons, the probation? I mean, how far are we going to cover? So here's the pillars. Look at the pillars. It's good. Police accountability, transparency, you know, issues like body cameras, training, um, you know, mass incarceration, uh, you know, is working with organizations, whether it's FAM or someone else uh, on the issues of clemency. And we like, for example, you know, during the lead up to Obama leaving, uh, we were actively writing clemency letters for for prisoners who were in prison at the federal level. Um, you're going to see issues of safe injection facilities, harm reduction, needle exchange programs, um, you know, uh, developing maybe uh, other crime prevention um, policies that, that uh, you know, the, the use of how do we define and, uh, and evaluate um, an effective law enforcement agency. So the issues of community policing and how best to implement those. So I think that there's a lot of different things that we can fit under those pillars, so to speak. Absolutely. And uh, the one final uh, topic here, uh, the Department of Justice under the previous attorneys general have done some reviews of certain police departments like Chicago and Baltimore, where they found uh, problems with uh Pattern and I forget the other term. Practice. Pattern and practice. Pattern and practice. And, and uh, the latest word I heard from uh, the Trump administration was they were going to get away from that and, and go to, you know, it's only just a few bad apples and just singling out the bad apples rather than, yeah. you know, noticing that the rest of that saying is spoils the bunch. Uh, any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's, so you have to look at the history of consent decrees and law enforcement, and largely they have. Uh, revolved around the issue of which party was in power. And so we, you know, we didn't have that an emphasis on consent decrees during, you know, Reagan, Bush and Bush, but we did maybe during Clinton and Obama. And, and so I think, I think Trump um, isn't necessarily being an outlier in it. I don't agree with it. I think that consent decrees are in fact uh, a necessary part of the, the proper role of the Department of Justice in evaluating the legitimacy of law enforcement agencies. And um, I think that's one that, that down the road we're really going to have to, both personally and as an organization, we're going to have to watch and work with other advocates like the ACLU or other organizations who will clearly be bringing up lawsuits in order to uh, rectify some of the policing problems like All they've right. done in the past. Well, that's fantastic news, and uh, we're just about out of time here, but I want to thank Diane Goldstein from Leap for joining us, and uh, congratulations on the on the new mission, and good luck moving forward in the future. No problem, Russ, and hey, by the way, I'm going to be in Portland in April. Oh, I will see you here in April. I sure will. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks so much. All thanks right. to your listeners. 
Yeah, you betcha. And uh, that's all the time we've got for this hour. And I've got all sorts of weird things happening with my uh, automation software. So uh, if if I seem distracted, it's because I am. <laughs> things don't want to work when I want them to work. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have our hour two here, uh, our Toker Talk radio coming up uh, right after I can make things go. Go, I say go. Take a seat. 